It's tragic, really. We all have a story. A dark secret wrapped in emptiness and regret. You know. The Toll. I'm Nancy Simpson. I have a story I've wanted to tell for a while. One that is very personal. My toll, I guess. Well, at least one of them. It's complicated, but I meet strangers all of the time and ask them to tell me their hardest stories. This is only fair. I contacted two family members of the true victim in this case. They said they would not take part in the project, didn't know the answer to one of my biggest questions after researching, and warned me that this woman has a lot of family in the area and there might be pushback. I hate that for this family. I hate it for every family who has a loved one featured in this way. In this particular case, this story is about me. And this poor woman, girl, is where the story starts. And there's nothing I can do to change that. My mom married a murderer. I wrote this episode for season one of The Toll, The Path Back Home, years ago. Executive producer Jay Lashley had the fun job of breaking the news to me. It wasn't going to make the cut in season one. He said it didn't fit. I had spent months researching this story, and because it was so personal, it was hard. But Jay and our sound editor, Kat, said, instead, it was a story that could be integrated into another season or even standalone. A very worthy story, yes, just not made for season one. And then, well, I kind of pushed it away. I dove into other stories and projects and kept telling myself I'd get around to working on it, you know, soon. (laughs) Well, a couple years later, it hadn't happened. A friend called and said, you need to get this done. You need to get this behind you. And she was right. First, though, I needed to go in and change some things. I needed to tone down the anger, I guess. With every life lesson, I gain more compassion and have really tried to apply some of that here. There are parts that I can't change, though. My family was severely broken before my mom married this murderer. He added very little value to this situation. Yeah, it got worse. And yet, I tried. And I keep trying to apply these lessons to my life today, finding even if it's a sliver, tiniest bit of compassion. This is the best I can offer. I do not candy coat anything here. Proceed with caution. If you have been or are currently in an abusive relationship, please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. You deserve better. You do. Producer Jay and me, a conversation we had as we were working on season one. I feel like I really got to know you on a pretty deep level for over a year and we're doing a podcast about murder And it just one day just pops out of your mouth. Oh, yeah. My mom was married to a guy who murdered. I I think that's how you said it. You remember how my mom married a guy who murdered his first wife, shot her through the throat. That's what I said to you. (laughs) And it just rolled out of your mouth. So you've obviously been tamping this down for a while because the fact that this didn't come up earlier is what's so crazy to me. And I think at some level, I knew this would come up. I knew this had a place here. I didn't know what it looked like or how my brain was even going to go there. Mm-hmm. I believe you. I actually, I really do believe you that you probably always knew that it was going to come out. 
But as a producer or somebody who's so much further removed, the reveal of that was very dramatic. And it made me know like, oh, this is going to be a huge part of the story because it may be the craziest part of the whole story. So yeah, the time my mom married a man who murdered his first wife. No blurred lines here. According to all of the newspapers I searched, his first wife was 16. She was pregnant. He shot her in 1974 in El Dorado Springs, Missouri. It was the mid-90s. I was 24. My mom wanted to take a road trip with me, which was highly unusual to start with. But I was headed to Oklahoma to pick up some furniture my step-grandma was giving me. My grandma's sister's husband had slipped on the ice, bonked his head, and died. Just like that. He was like an accountant or something and had been cooking the books. Anyway, Grandma was moving in with her sister as that woman worked to put her life back together. So here we were, my mom and me, on this road trip. We loaded up the furniture and we were headed back home. As we're driving home that night, just the two of us, my mom looked at me and said, I have something to tell you. I said, you've met someone else and you're leaving dad. Her mouth dropped. She asked me how I knew, panicked that there were rumors going around town. I can't explain it. I hadn't been home in months, had no idea this was playing out, yet I knew. This happens to me from time to time. I know I'm not alone here. Not sad at this point, my dad was troubled, broken, and for most of it had been awful to her, my sisters, and me. Terrible, abusive, and what we can now see was compounded events triggering his PTSD. He'd been in AA for years, but... He needed more help than that. He was very broken. If she was leaving to find happiness, then I was happy for her. We went back to Clinton, Missouri, my hometown, and she takes me to him, her boyfriend. Anyway, his name at this point is Terry. He later changed his name to Jay. As years passed and background checks became a real thing, it got harder for him to find a job, you know, when you've murdered somebody. I think that's why. Later, I also learned probably hiding from the victim's family. So I first knew him as Terry Greenhaw. And for someone to change their name in the middle of their life sucks for everybody else, by the way. Let me just add that really quick. Anyway, that's what I'll call him through this story. Terry. We stopped at his grandparents' house where he'd been living. He was loud, in your face, and had this, you're going to like me no matter what, I'm going to make sure of it kind of push about him. But I roll on. My mom moves out of the rundown trailer on the pig farm with my two teenage sisters and into an apartment in town. Nice. Something my sisters can be happy about, not embarrassed. Starting a new adventure, maybe with less craziness and abuse. And my dad is heartbroken, but he really wanted to be alone for as long as I can remember. So sad this is happening, yes, but not that sad. In the only letter he ever wrote me, he actually said he was thankful the girls had a place to live where they could have friends over and not be embarrassed. That same day, though, Terry is moving his stuff in, too. What? Well, I'm not happy. Not only am I not happy, but there's this thing. I don't know what it is, but it's a dark blanket, a feeling. I don't know. People are whispering, acting weird. There's a secret I don't know about, and I've come to really hate that feeling, right? Like, in life, in general, this feeling, it's awful, right? People who'd been around a while, who lived in Clinton their entire lives, they knew Terry Greenhaw. He'd been on their TVs, in the paper, all over the news, charged and convicted of murder. My dad, who breaks, starts yelling at me that this guy my family is living with murdered his first wife. I brush him off. I call him crazy, tell him he needs to get a grip. And then I call my mom. 
Hey, Dad's freaking out saying Terry murdered his wife and spent years in prison. She gets silent. Finally, she answers, Well, about that. I told producer Jay this story. My dad and my mom were going through a divorce. She left my dad for this man. And she was introducing him to our family. And then my dad freaked out because, you know, many years earlier, this guy was in the news. Like, we had Kansas City News. This happened happened in El Dorado Springs. Like, this man, they had her picture on the news looking for her for two weeks. And they arrest this guy who's now going to be moving in with my mom and my sisters. So my dad's freaking out. And people in the community are weird. They're acting weird. And I don't know why. You know, back then, we didn't have Google. You didn't just... Okay. Oh, there's all the information. It wasn't like that. So when he told me this story, I was sitting at her table in her new apartment after she left my dad and he is angry. Terry, Jay, he is just really angry and he's got this newspaper and he slams it down in front of me. And he was like, I'm telling you that I took my grandpa's truck and I picked up a shotgun out of anger, a shotgun that was never, ever ever loaded and I pointed it at her and I pulled the trigger and he was like and in this newspaper and he's like pounding on the table with this newspaper look at the good things I did in prison he was like I raised money for whatever it was maybe like a a girl with cancer I think it was and him and some buddies had raised money or done something good right this is my redeeming quality and you're going to recognize this this is what you're going to focus on not that and it was just scary and yelling and and anger and how dare you question this you know and I was young you know and I was scared and I just I didn't know how to react or what to do and I never asked about it again I never asked anybody about it again Hmm. isn't that weird not it is not weird because (laughs) I don't think it is that weird honestly it's not people don't talk about it and that's obviously what I'm finding out through this entire piece is people just don't talk about it to help answer questions I've never dared ask I find Terry's sister Cindy Bathgate before I go for the visit I talk to producer Jay about how nervous I am to meet with her I've met her before she's not a stranger to me very nice woman But at this point, I just didn't know the details about someone who had such an impact on my life and family. I did a lot of keeping the peace for the sake of the family. And later in life, my kids called him grandpa. I think in meeting another person that's been close to him and has probably been affected by his negative actions but loves him, you're probably going to find a kindred spirit that feels similar of like, wow, this is conflicting to feel this way towards this person. More similarities than differences, maybe? I think so. I feel like psychologically, we all want to feel like we're each individual and our problems are the real big ones. But when we connect with people on a human level, you realize, oh, we're the the same. Our problems are different, but they're the same. It's like a different verse of the same song. And once you realize, it makes you feel a lot better. You just don't think you're going to in your mind because you think, oh, I want to be special and have unique problems, but actually connecting with other humans and realizing, oh, you get this too. The toll is everywhere. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And, and, you know, you ask people, ooh, you got one in your family? (laughs) Yeah, they do. Right. Mm -hmm. No matter what has happened within their family, they can relate to other people's problems because it is. So I meet Cindy, Terry's sister, at an RV park in central Missouri. 
It's a getaway place for Cindy and her family. It's beautiful. On this day, it's raining, and we settle in. She starts with her first memories as the little sister. Terry's dad, Joe, cheats on their mom and has another kid. A good role model he was not, she says. It was a tough start, for sure. By the time the boy was born, Joe had already flown the coop. He, uh, he was a womanizer and traveled around the country, has kids all over the United States. During the interim, while he was married to this other woman, my mother met my dad, Patty met my dad, and uh, they had me. And shortly after they had me, almost immediately, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And she ended up passing when I was about four. At that time, my dad had not adopted Terry. So I remember the night my mom died. He, he, uh, Terry came in the room and he said, uh, wake up, Cindy. He said, wake up. Mom's gone. She's dead. And I started crying. I was too little to even know what it meant, I'm sure. And uh, my dad heard me crying, and my dad was an alcoholic. And when he heard me crying, he came in the room, and I'm sure I was blubbering something about my mom being dead. So he turned and grabbed Terry and threw him across the room and just started beating the tar out of him. My uncle, we were at my aunt and uncle's house, and my uncle came into the room and separated them and called my grandparents and said, come get Terry, you need to take him. So they did. I think he was about nine. If he wasn't nine, he was 10, but I'm thinking he was about nine because there was about six years in between us. So my grandparents came and took him. I heard I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral because I was too little, but I didn't see him again for quite a while. And then my dad kind of picked up I'm sure bar hose along the way and to get rid of me they would send me down to my grandparents so I would get to see Terry and spend time with him well. As time wore on my dad met another woman and he ended up marrying her and as it turned out the other woman turned out to be the same woman that was having an affair with my mother's first husband with Joe. So this woman raised me. I was an only child I mean, I, she had her three kids, and then after her and my dad got married, they had two more children, a set of twins, and uh, they were all her kids. Mm-hmm. And then there was me. It was challenging, to say the least. She wasn't mean to me. She was just indifferent. In the mid-90s, as we said, the internet was new. There was no Googling Terry Greenhaw, and I was exhausted with the whole thing. My mom married Terry. Sometimes you don't do the things you need to do because you're exhausted. And maybe down deep, you don't want to know. I'm pretty sure I didn't dig out the details of this murder at the time because I didn't want to know. When my one sister was 16, she got into a fight with Terry. I'll never know how bad it really was. She says he kicked her while she was going up the stairs and he didn't deny it, said it wasn't hard. I'm not one to sit by with stuff like this. My family was living with a man who had killed someone my sister's age. And I was kind of scared. Eventually, she moved in with me. I took her to Springfield, Missouri, where I was living, and enrolled her in high school. My sister graduated and then took a hard path that has led us to be estranged now for many years. Easy to lay all that blame on her there, isn't it? I played a hand in that mess, too. Watching someone you love battle addiction sucks. 
We haven't spoken in well over a decade. She has what appears to be a happy life now, and I'm so very happy for her. And I'm proud of her. My other sister, who was 15, stayed. My mom, Terry, and my littlest sister moved from place to place, sometimes staying with his former prison cellmate. My sister liked Les and his wife, and later moved in with a step-grandma with the furniture in Oklahoma. My littlest sister had a rough time and was emancipated from our parents by a judge on her own at 15. That's Pamela from Season 1 of The Toll, The Path Back Home. She's the marketing manager now for The Toll. She'll say now that Terry is not the reason her life was so tragic for a while, but he certainly didn't help the situation. He was very raw with her, nasty and inappropriate. I know that now. He was not blatantly that way with me, but I was much older. There are things that happened to her during that time that she has never told me. He died in 2014. He had lung cancer. He went to a cancer treatment center in Oklahoma, alone, checked in a room, waited for treatment, and workers found him dead in a chair. It was after that my sister Pamela, the one who took off on her own, started to poke around, just to see. What was the real story? I was the investigative reporter, and it never even dawned on me to peek behind the curtain, back to not wanting to know, I'm sure. And it was there, all there. She'd find an article and send it to me, and I'd rush one right back to her. We'd start remembering the lies and this and that and how it was all wrong and messy and sad. Super, super sad. The following is what I found out through Missouri Court of Appeals records and local newspapers. It looks like two years after Terry was convicted, he tried to claim mental disease or defect and have his conviction thrown out. Terry never got a hearing. He spent quite a bit of time under evaluation at the state mental hospital in Fulton. His court hearings delayed over and over. In 1982, Terry tried again, saying his mental condition wasn't included in information given to Terry's attorney and says his attorney didn't fight it. Terry felt he was denied due process. Turns out his attorney did have the information, and all of this was a moot point. It goes on and on. Well, back in 1974, it was February 22nd, 1974, Terry Greenhall was 19 and living with his grandparents on his mom's side in Clinton, Missouri. His wife, Leanne Ayers Greenhall, was living in El Dorado Springs with her parents. She was 16 and six months pregnant. They had been estranged and were in the process of getting a divorce. There had been a break-in at a drugstore in El Dorado Springs about the same time she left him. I remember Terry yelling at me, the one and only time that we talked about the murder, the day I confronted him and my mom, that Leanne and her drugged-out friends had pulled off the burglary and had pinned it on him. I see in these papers he'd been charged with receiving stolen narcotics, but not blamed in the break-in itself. Sometime before that fateful Friday, the kidnapping, he prepared a letter to his grandparents. In the Court of Appeals notes, it says he wrote he was going to see Leanne at her parents' home that morning, and when no one was around, he was going to kill her, strangle her, or stab her to death. He also wrote he planned to buy a 12-gauge shotgun and a box of shells and kill himself after he killed his wife. The letter was discovered March 2nd in his grandfather's pickup, more than a week later. This right here is why Terry was charged with first-degree murder. Premeditated. Planned out. Not heat of the moment in a fight rage killing. All thought out killing. He told me they'd been fighting and he grabbed his grandpa's gun, which he never, ever, ever loaded, and shot her. Not true at all. I had no idea he was convicted of first-degree murder. He was out of prison. 
At the point I met him, the murder had happened 20 years earlier. Even as life in Missouri is 30 years, second-degree murder in the heat-of-the-moment murder seemed plausible. Terry had been out for a while, was married again to another woman before he met my mother. Not the case. First-degree murder. That really hit me hard. So February 22, 1974, he borrowed his grandfather's pickup truck and headed to El Dorado Springs. Terry was supposed to return it later that day. As he was leaving Clinton, he ran into Walmart and bought the shotgun and shells. Court papers say it was a box of federal, number six, shotgun shells. Leanne was well aware Terry was headed her way. She did not want him to come to her parents' house. She left a note on their door saying she had gone downtown to the cafe where her mother worked. Her note, she dated it, 2-22-74. So she's in the cafe. Terry gets there about 11.30. They're sitting in a booth, chatting for about 20 minutes, and then leave the cafe together. Leanne tells her mom she has some errands to run and will be back in 30 minutes. Leanne is wearing her gold-rimmed, tinted prescription glasses. An important detail. So she was last seen at 11.30. At about 1.30 that day, a couple of telephone cable installers were working on some lines along a gravel road north and west of El Dorado Springs, Missouri. One of them finds those gold-rimmed, tinted prescription glasses on the road. He slips them into his pocket and puts them in his hotel room where they were staying while they did the job. The next morning, Leanne's dad, Robert Ayers, calls police. Later that day, he calls the sheriff's department and tells deputies about his daughter's disappearance after she left the cafe with Terry. This shows how worried he is. Robert doesn't stop there. He calls the Missouri State Highway Patrol and juvenile authorities. Police in Clinton, Kansas City, and the FBI were all alerted as well. In several newspaper articles, it says that Robert, her dad, was a former printer for the Post-Tribune in Gary, Indiana, and the Rocky Mountain News in Denver. He'd probably printed about plenty of murders. Meanwhile, Terry's grandfather reported his pickup missing. Terry was supposed to return the truck, and the grandfather hadn't heard from or seen him since he took off. That night, Terry checked into a motel in Clinton, tells the clerk his vehicle is stuck in the city park. He spends that night and the next at that motel. We jump to March 2, 1974, more than a week later. Leanne is the focus of a search by city county, state, and federal authorities. Terry is nowhere to be found. That's the day there's a break in the case. The grandfather's pickup truck is found stuck in a field in Clinton. Court papers say inside the truck was a federal number six shot shotgun shell, empty, and Terry's letter to his grandparents. Two days later, March 4, 1974, the Cedar County Sheriff's Office issued an arrest warrant for Terry Joe Greenhaw. Yes, his middle name isn't even Jay. Up until now, I thought it was. Anyway, a bolo is entered into the National Crime Information Center's computer. 1974. Four days later, March 8th, the telephone worker, still working in the area, provides the next break in the case. He sees a newspaper article about Leanne's disappearance and those glasses. He has her glasses. So he heads over to the police station. Officers show them to her mother, those gold-rimmed, tinted prescription glasses, and she says yes. They belong to her daughter. Off they go. The telephone cable guy and police, he takes them to the gravel road where he found the glasses. One of them finds a federal number six shot shotgun shell nearby. It's 9.30 in the morning. 
Almost at the same time, a quarter to ten, a police officer and a juvie officer in an area near Kansas City see four guys walking along a highway. It's a school day and the boys look fairly young. The officers thought they might be truants and stopped them collecting IDs. Terry's gotten away with this for more than two weeks now at this point. Court papers say at a hearing, Terry testifies he was high on drugs and the other three were possibly under 17 years old. They'd caught a ride from Kansas City to Blue Springs and were headed to Springfield, Missouri. Police radio in the names and three came back as juvenile jackets, skipping class. It also showed Terry was wanted for kidnapping his wife. The officer asked him if he knew there was an arrest warrant out for him and he answered no. The officer radios dispatch who calls the sheriff's office who advises, this might be a homicide. Terry is put under arrest and the officer reads him his Miranda rights. The officer asks Terry if he knows where his wife is and he says he believes she's out of state. He was taken to the Blue Springs Police Station where he was booked and searched. Then there's this. In his wallet is the note left by Leanne on her parents' door more than two weeks earlier. Terry had circled the date, February 22nd, and above it, someone wrote, She died. I'm sure that word spread to officers down south pretty quick. It was about an hour later that Leanne's body was found in a ditch near where her glasses and the shotgun shell were discovered. She had a shotgun blast in her neck close range. Deputies, where the body was located, asked the officers up north to ask Terry if he had a shotgun. He said he bought one and added that he hid it and the remaining shells near Clinton, where his grandparents lived. Then he draws them a map. The officer asks Terry if he killed his wife. He says he doesn't want to talk about it. He'll talk about anything else, but not that. Detectives find the murder weapon and shells. Ballistics show the empty shell found near her body was fired from Terry's new shotgun. The court papers don't say who actually located her body. Police, deputies, the telephone lineman? No. The newspapers say it was her brother, Richard. Ricky. The paper says he was 19. Terry Joe Greenhaw was charged and entered a not guilty plea, and then that not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. Court papers show he has two stays at Fulton State Mental Hospital, seen by doctors, and a psychiatrist that he got to pick. His expert says he's crazy. The state's expert says no. He argues over the ballistics test conducted by an expert with the Missouri State Highway Patrol from the crime lab. In the appeal in 1977, Terry fights, claiming unlawful seizure while being stopped with his buddies, and he wanted the note in his wallet thrown out as evidence. Denied. Again, this is an appeal after the trial. The appeals court doesn't agree with any of his arguments. It's pages long, I'll spare you. There's another part where I have to laugh, back to him filing all of these appeals himself. It's written, quote, Again, we are confronted with the point failing to inform us what action or ruling of the trial court is sought to be reviewed. It's like the court workers are lost in his requests. Also lost? His sister, Cindy. She's in middle school when this all plays out. The murder. Well, at our school, we had a library, and they had local papers from the area, and because I lived so close to him, the Clinton paper was in our school, and I went into study hall one day, and I saw the story and the pictures that they were looking for him. That's how you found out? That's how I found out. The library at school? Yes. Had his picture in the paper? Yes. And the murder scene, and the, yeah, I remember it. 
and I would go in faithfully after that to keep up with the story to see what was going on because you didn't talk about it at home. Did people talk about it to you? Um, people didn't know that we were related. So my good friends did. They, we, just, we talked about it, but for the most part, nobody knew. It was a big secret. So maybe you were 13, 14? What, whatever I would have been in junior high, yeah. And you're carrying around the secret. You're sneaking into the library. Reading it secretly. So no, I mean, I, people would see me reading it, but trying to act like you're not shocked or, or uh, associated with it. Or just the mental damage it's doing in the process, trying to hide it from everybody. Well, you couldn't talk to anybody about it because I couldn't talk to my stepmom. I definitely couldn't talk to my dad, my siblings. I think they were aware of it, my stepbrothers and sisters, who would have been related to him too, but we didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about it. Up until that point, she says she saw Terry about once a year. With all of the weirdness of the family tree, he wasn't welcomed. And any time he showed up to visit Cindy at her dad's house, they had to stay outside. And it was always high anxiety. She says Terry longed for a family that wouldn't have anything to do with him. I know that my grandparents spoiled him to the best of their ability, but they weren't well-to-do by any means, but they would have done without so that he would have had what he needed. My uncle also helped. He would send money and, and help with whatever he could to uh, make sure that he had nice clothes to wear and everything. But I do know when he was a teenager that he got heavily involved in drugs. And back in the 70s, that wasn't uncommon at all. And the circle of friends that he was running with, I know when he was younger, he was in the Boy Scouts and everything. He went to church. My grandparents did everything they could to make sure that he had everything he could. But the thing with Terry was, and he told me this, he always felt like an outcast because he was never allowed to be around his family. And, you know, it wasn't just me. He had half-brothers and sisters there was three of them that were his half-brother and sister that lived in the same house I did that didn't have anything to do with him. And honestly, I don't even think they knew that he was their brother until they got older and after this had happened with him. So he felt like he had all this family and then here he was and he wasn't allowed to be a part of it. So he got involved in drugs really, really bad and he wound up going and joining the Navy. And while he was in the Navy, and I have a letter of this somewhere, he was booted out of the Navy because he tested positive for drugs. And he was out in California when this happened, San Diego, and he ended up going to my uncle who lived out there at the time. And my uncle took him in, but he told him he was going to have to get a job and work. Well, he wasn't real work brittle, and he didn't get a job. He just wanted to party on the beach. And he got involved in more drugs, and my uncle ended up, I think, buying him a one-way ticket back to Missouri. So he had a troubled, a very troubled childhood, but it was self-inflicted, I feel like. He was a victim of his circumstances, and I'm not making excuses for him. He just never could be happy with living with my grandparents, as good as they were to him. So he was back in Missouri. He came back to Clinton, moved back in with my grandparents again, met Leanne, and uh, I remember they came to the house one time, and I met her. I don't have any specific memories about her other than she was quiet. She was uh, tall and thin, 
I mean, that's the only memory I have of her. And sometime right after that, they got married. Cindy talks about the day Terry admitted to the murder, the one and only time. He'd always denied, 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 denied that he'd ever done it. Always denied. And Terry always liked to put himself in a good light. I mean, I could usually see through it. And I had read enough to know that he could have denied all he wanted to, but I never believed he was innocent, ever. There was just too many things that pointed to his guilt. So years later, he had gone to California to see my uncle or something. I, I don't recall the circumstances, but he had flown back to the airport in Kansas City, and I went and picked him up, and we were driving home. And he'd always told me outlandish stories about how, well, they needed to look for this guy because he's the one that did it and blah, blah, blah. And the guy that he had said did it was supposedly a boyfriend of hers. And he was the one that had actually done it. And Terry tracked him down later and ended up pushing him into a, there was some kind of a foundry or something. I mean, it was a far-fetched story. Some kind of a foundry in El Dorado, and he had found him and pushed him into the foundry, and he would never, he would pay for it and never talk to anyone again. Supposedly, Terry had told me he'd killed him. Well, I never believed it. So anyway, I go pick him up at the airport. We're coming home, and uh, he started talking, and he said, oh, I'm only going to tell you this one time. This is his story of what happened. He said that uh, he had married Leanne, and they were having problems, and they had separated, and he'd moved back in with my grandparents. Leanne, I think, was living with her folks. I'm not sure. Anyway, he found out that she was pregnant. He said he thought, oh, my goodness, this is great. This baby will have a chance at having a family that I never had. We can work this out. I can be the dad. She can be the mom. We'll be a family. And it's something that he never had. I mean, that was his exact words. This baby will have a chance at a family that I never had. This is his story. Now, true or not, I don't know. So he decided that he would go try to work things out with Leanne. He goes to the restaurant where she was working, picked her up, and they went for a drive. He was in my granddad's truck. And they drive down this gravel road, and they're talking, and they're getting high. They were smoking dope, is what he told me. They're driving down the road, and they're talking, and she told him, yeah, she was pregnant. And she said, but the baby isn't yours. And he said, in that instant, he said, I just snapped. And he said, granddad's shotgun was in the back window of the truck, which was what they did in that day. I took the shotgun and I used it. That was his exact words. I took the shotgun out of the back window of the truck and I used it. And he left her laying in the ditch and left. And he never told me again. I believe that was true. Only it wasn't. I tell her how the newspapers and court papers all say he planned the murder. Can you imagine what it took for someone to knowingly go knowing what he was going to do and play Mr. Innocent and get her to go with him, knowing full well what he was going to do. And he did know because you said he left a note. Can you imagine what that took in his mind to follow through with that and do it? That is just sick. She just didn't have any idea what she was dealing with. Cindy gave me the wedding pictures, Terry and Leanne. Well, I just found them. I think I've seen them in the past, but I just found them again the other night, knowing that I was going to see you. And I remember 
coming across them and really my only thought was, oh, I think uh, Nancy would like to have these. <laughs> I don't have a lot of thoughts about them because I wasn't there and it wasn't a, an event that I participated in. So I, I don't know. She was quiet when you met her? Very quiet. Very she, unassuming? Yes, very quiet. I don't even know that she even spoke when I seen her. He likes those kind of women. He likes women that he can control. Leanne is wearing those gold-rimmed, tinted prescription glasses, and they're cutting the cake. Cindy, Terry's sister, talks about going to the prison for the first time to visit him. I'm fascinated. Somehow, I think it was when I turned 17 and I moved out of the house, I got with my grandparents. They took me to see him in prison. You remember that? Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, I remember going. What was that like? Um, scary. Man, that prison was scary. First of all, you had to be approved. Of course, I had to have a different post office box so nobody would know that I was getting mail because he started writing me letters to my post office box. And I can remember going into the Jefferson City Penitentiary and it was scary. You'd go in and they'd you couldn't have any belongings, and there'd be this room about the size of an elevator, and this door would clank open real slowly, and then you'd go in this elevator-sized room, and then it would come behind you and clank, and I mean, like, boom, you're in there, and then the other door would open, and then you'd walk across the hallway, and then there'd be another door, but then we'd go in this great big waiting room, and there'd be all kinds of prisoners in there visiting their families and stuff. It was strange. It was, I don't know that it was scary once you got in the waiting room, but it was hard for me to keep my eyes on the conversation because there was a lot of stuff going on in that room. He would come out, he'd have like gray pants and a white shirt on. We'd sit there and visit and you had to use the vending machines. You couldn't take dinner in or anything like that. So my grandparents would always have plenty of coins for the vending machines and We'd eat potato chips and pop for lunch or whatever and sit and visit. And he always had stories, you know, this guy over here, see him out there over there making out with his girlfriend. Well, he's got a girlfriend in here. And I mean, he had all kinds of stories. Terry always had a story. Always. And one time after I was married, I remember going with my husband and we took our daughter and he got to meet my daughter. She was probably two he got to meet her in prison. How many times do you think you visited in prison? Probably altogether, maybe 10. After 14 years in prison, he was released. Cindy says she just wanted more from her brother. Wishful thinking. I just thought he would be a brother. He would be a mentor. He would, I'm kind of stupid thinking that, but I thought he would be an uncle to my kids. And he gets out of prison, and it was just like he didn't want responsibilities. And we had some grandparents that were aging, and my uncle was in California. My mom was gone, and somebody had to look after the grandparents. And he just didn't see that he needed to do any of those responsibilities. But I thought he would spend time with my kids and... He didn't. The only thing Terry was interested in taking care of was Terry. That was just how he was. He really did not have any responsibilities towards anyone except himself. We tolerated him. When he would come around, he would be Mr. Big Shot Loudmouth trying to tell me what to do and how to do it. 
and you need to do this and you need to do that. Well, I, you know, I've got a husband, three kids, and a home, and I've never been in prison, so you don't have any right to tell me what I need to do. But I never told him. I just listened to him and pray that the visit would be over and he'd go on back to wherever he came from. He was all about flashy cars and how much things cost and who had the best of this. And he was always trying to drop names. And one thing I remember, he had a subscription to a a yachting magazine. Like he was going to buy a yacht and the guy couldn't keep a job. He had stacks of those yachting magazines in the house when he died. I found in a letter to his grandparents that he started getting those in prison, a gift from his Uncle Wayne. He was also obsessed with an idea he had about a generator. He would actually quit his job and tell my mom he had to spend that time gathering investors. Everyone around him lost hours and hours of their lives listening to him talk about that generator. It's really all he talked about. Producer Jay and I talk about my anxiety throughout this piece. My bar was so my bar was so off, right? My measuring stick is crazy off from my upbringing. My dad's nuts. My mom was checked out, you know. So just uh, the level of where to measure this anyway, pff, off the charts. I mean, I didn't have a chance. But, you know, just being young and being naive about the whole thing and, you know, finally actually seeing my mom happy. That was kind of weird, too, because my mom had mm. been in such a, an abusive relationship, you know, my whole life with my dad. And it was just just nutso anyway and mm. she's like oh my gosh I found somebody who will pay attention to me who tells me they love me and and to see her kind of lighten up like that you're like oh my gosh like good for you mom we were happy when my mom left my dad happy we were just didn't know where to put that in our brain because then she met this guy we didn't know it at first and he ended up being that guy right yeah, that, I mean, I'm not going to lie. That sounds like a confusing set uh, of emotions right there because you're obviously saying there was a little bit of a conflict because, like, he made your mom happy and that part you were grateful for. And maybe that's what, maybe that's part of what this is going to do is there would be nothing wrong from the outside looking in with you appreciating that this man made your mom happy. There could be a world where you could appreciate that and hate what he did. Those are not exclusive ideas. And I need to add very quickly, he was a very good grandfather to my kids. Like he Mm. was, because he was so loud and so Mm. on all the time. Like he was the grandpa that was on the floor rolling around, uh, you know, wrestling and having fun and go-karts and roller coasters and whatever crazy thing they wanted to do. My kids loved him. He would buy them guitars and buy them the neatest gifts because he was a kid in his mind, too. And so when he came, it was it was circus. I mean, it was crazyville for us because he was loud and he was obnoxious. But if you could remove yourself from that and look at it from my children's point of view, they loved him. Well, I think I feel now we're cracking into probably where your anxiety exists because I feel fairly confident listening to you that. A lot of probably the conflict you feel is it is exactly the toll and exactly what we're delving into with this, that you do have these conflicting feelings because the way we think of it in our mind is that it's cut and dry. And if somebody murdered somebody, they're such a horrible person that they have nothing left. They're a outcast of society. There's nothing good about them. But the reality is that it's a long life and people can redeem themselves in all kinds of ways. And there is an incredibly gray area of the way you can feel grateful for a person and really hate certain things that they've done. And I think 
that conflict is what we're delving into. And I think it's really apparent here. I'm quick to add that my kids were never allowed to spend the night, go for the weekend, never left alone with Terry. Now, as much as I appreciate producer Jay's input, he does have a psychology degree and submerges himself into true crime. I sought out a family psychologist with a doctor title. Dr. Jennifer Baker in Springfield, Missouri, is a clinical psychologist with a background in family therapy. I filled her in on my family story and the fact that my two sisters were split up and had hard times with hard choices ahead of them. You know, what we say is things like that leave a marker. I mean, that's the thing is that trauma leaves a marker on your life and then things in the future can trigger that marker. It's not like that just goes away. Dr. Baker says the kids thrown into these situations have no say and many don't feel safe. So they lash out. I've seen uh, adolescents and even young adults make very poor choices that were not in their best interest. And I think they kind of knew it, but they were just mad. They were just mad. They're angry at the world. And so what the heck, you know, could do it anyway. Keeping the peace at any cost to keep relationships within the family can be exhausting. She says, as long as you're safe, do this. Set boundaries and time limits and keep conversations surface. Always drive yourself so you're never trapped. I asked Dr. Baker about family members and close friends seeing this train wreck coming from a mile away and trying to help. We talk about my case where I could only take in one sister but not the other. Ugly situations that are soaked in guilt. You have to be thoughtful about what you tell yourself. I talk frequently with clients about what is the story you're telling yourself. Um, You did the best you could. You were given an impossible situation. Of course, you wish you could have done more. Of course, you feel regret and you feel sadness about it. And But you probably also feel angry about being put in an impossible situation. And at the end of the day, you just did what you could. And, it, you know, there's part of that is grieving, grieving uh that you were put in a situation where there was no good answer. And remember that part of the whole grieving process is sometimes anger too. You know, I have, I have a little statement that I sometimes I've got in my office and sometimes share with clients and it's, I don't know who said it, but I think it's really appropriate. And that is it. The statement says at some point I have to give up all hope of a better yesterday. But she says that doesn't mean the future can't be much, much better. There was a blurb in the paper that said Terry had thoughts of cutting the baby out of his estranged wife. I asked Cindy about this. Now, see, I might have read that in the past because that might have been where I got that he was at my mother's grave. And I had heard that he had cut the baby out of her. I don't know if that's true or not. So he wrote that he was going to do that. That's what it says in the paper. Hmm. It's the only time I find it. I've heard that. What do you think when you hear that? I mean, what can you think about it? He was crazy. That's disgusting. What can you think about it? Did you know that person? No. No. I never saw that person. The person that I saw was always upbeat and everything was perfect. No, I never knew that person. I can't imagine... What kind of a person would even have that kind of a thought? Much less put it in black and white on paper. Was he ever threatening toward you? 
No. Ever scare you? No. No. And I ask that because even even as him and my sister are fighting and I feel this compulsion to get her out of the house and I feel a compulsion to get both of my sisters out, but I'm 25 years old and I can only do so much. You know, I take one sister and I leave the other and even through all of that and everything that's weird, I just never, never felt like he was actually going to kill any members of my family. In the back of my mind, I'm saying, but I don't know that. But really, my feeling in my body is I just, I don't feel that he's going to do this. Right. I never, I never, ever felt threatened by him, ever. He was annoying, but I never felt threatened by him. And isn't that weird to have, I don't know. I you just, know. I, I just knew what I knew, and so it, I had to act on what I knew. Oh. You know, even when he told me that what he had done which, of course, was years later, I still didn't feel threatened by him. He had a way of schmoozing people. Narcissist. I mean, he was he was good at it, but I don't know. Most of what he said, I didn't believe. Producer Jay weighs in. We're not trying to crucify this man. Like, that's not our goal here at all. As far as the government is concerned, he's paid his, his due. I mean, he, he is square with the government. Totally square. And he obviously has redeemable qualities, and I can obviously see that conflict in you, and I think sharing that is powerful. People do bad things, but that does not mean that anybody really is all bad. The same way that nobody asks for this stuff to happen to them, and you just have such a good story to share that really makes you credible to talk about the other people's story. I do want to say that you said, you've said redeemable quality several times, and I just want to make sure that I do ride the line very carefully. This guy was a jerk. He was a real jerk. He was a terrible person to my sister. He, um, refused to get a job. He left my mom high and dry. Like, <laughs> you say redeemable qualities, and I just, it really shakes me to the core because there was so much crap about him that was so challenging every time you had to be around him. But with that said, you have to give credit where credit was due, and he was a great grandpa to my kids. Right, but it is still your story to tell, though, in the sense of the way that it shakes out is the way it shakes out. If he gets 3% positive credit, that's completely fine. It is what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I laughed there at the end, but what Jay said right there, it helped me. It helped me make a lot of this okay. I can give Terry 3% credit for being a good grandpa to my kids. And the rest sucked. For some reason, assigning a number to this actually helped me here. I remember after we went in for this session, I took my bags, loaded down with my laptop and overstuffed file folders, and went to the library. I was sitting in a cubby. And I got to this part, the 3% credit part. And I started crying. Here it is. I let it go. I felt better. Following up with clinical psychologist Dr. Jennifer Baker, I spoke to her about this. Go, Jay. <laughs> Here's the thing that's so difficult for human beings to um, grasp is that people can be both good and bad. And they're not one. We want to make them that's a bad person or that's a good person. I think a perfect example of that is Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby's funny. I mean, the problem is now we know all the other stuff about Bill Cosby. And so you just can't do it, you know, because you feel like he was a bad, bad man. No, well, 
he was, he did some bad things. He was also very funny. In the psychology world, we call that splitting. So where we want to make all bad or all good. But in fact, people can have more than one side. And that's so difficult. I talked about the newspaper Terry threw down on my mom's kitchen table as he was yelling his version of events that played out in that ditch February 22nd, 1974. I found an article related to this in the UPI archives. He was in an organization called the JCs. Well, they worked to develop leadership skills through community service. The little girl's name was Kimberly Martin. She had her own day. Kimberly Martin Day at Missouri Eastern Correctional Center in Pacific. A letter Terry wrote to his grandparents, I have stacks of them, is dated Sunday, June 10th, 1985, 2 p.m. On the return address, T.J. Greenhaw, inmate number 2877. He writes, Wednesday, we had a birthday party in the visiting room for Kimberly Martin. She's looking great and isn't nearly as frail looking as she used to be. She's eight years old now. Thursday, she was going to begin her chemotherapy treatments again, so we'll be holding our breath to see if she makes it through again this time. In the UPI Archives article, it's October 4th, 1987. It reads, quote, The 10-year-old leukemia victim rushed through the prison doors and leaped joyfully into the arms of a convicted murderer, one of dozens of criminals who donated money to pay her medical bills. That wasn't Terry she was running to. Kimberly had been going to the prison in Pacific for five years. She was in remission at this point. It says an inmate learned of Kimberly in a newspaper article. It says inmates only make about $10 a month performing jobs around the prison. They'd take up a collection. Now later, a company donated a video game, and all the quarters raised in lockup went to the family for medical bills. Her mom, Paula, said if it wasn't for the money from the machine, they wouldn't be able to make the insurance premium. A superintendent at the prison says the inmates had actually raised more than $25,000 for the family. So that part of Terry's story was true. I have pictures of him with other inmates, one gathered around a table for a JC meeting, another all lined up for a group photo. He's wearing gold-rimmed, tinted glasses. Cindy, Terry's sister, wants to find the good. It's hard. You came into it after the fact. I lived it. And I was always rolling my eyes. You know, in my mind, I was... He was just a person that you rolled your eyes at, for lack of another word. He was just hard to believe. Um, you knew he was lying. I mean, if he opened his mouth, lies were coming out. You knew it. But he was my brother. I don't, I don't know. I think I, I just felt an obligation to my mother that I had to be friends with him. Not that he ever did anything for me, because I don't recall that he ever did anything for me. He was my big brother. He should have been. He should have been looking out for me. And you know what I mean. Not that I needed to be looked out for, but instead of me always having to answer for him, he should have been responsible. But he never he never had a responsible bone in his body. He just didn't. And my kids deserved an uncle. But they never got it. They were the same way. When he left, it was, whew, thank God he's gone. Isn't that horrible? Did he have any redeeming qualities? Well, he could play music. He could play music. Um, I don't know of any. Isn't that sad? He never was a big brother. I can't think of any redeeming qualities. I really can't. He loved my grandparents. I do know he loved my grandparents. 
but she's quick to reflect on her own life and her own decisions. I changed my life. I didn't let it drag me down. I, one thing, you know, I had some aunts that were really good to me, and one of them passed away several years ago, and I remember thinking, I have looked for family my whole life. And that's so stupid because I have a family. I don't have to keep looking for a family. I have a family. I made my family. And I've got a husband. I've got kids. I've got grandkids and a wonderful life. And I don't have any complaints. It's been hell getting here, but I'm here and I succeeded. And uh, I'm not rich by any means, but I am comfortable. My brother strived for what I have, and he could have had it, but he he always needed more. He wasn't ever happy with what he had. It always had to be more. It always had to be bigger and better. And uh, he looked for family, and he never got it. But he was looking the wrong places. I looked for family, and I made it. So We head out to the cemetery to visit Leanne's gravesite. Cindy actually searched it out long before I started asking questions. I was really troubled last year. For some reason, it was just just troubled, for lack of better words. And uh, at the time, I couldn't get closure. And I remember I went into my bedroom one day, into the closet, and there was a sack in the closet, and I was looking for something, what I thought was in the sack, And I picked the sack up and I opened it, and it wasn't at all what I thought it was. It was a receipt from when my brother was born with how much it cost and and everything. And it was all kinds of mementos from him, and I did not know that sack was in that closet. I had no idea it was in that closet. I had never seen what was in that sack. And I got to going through it, and it was like, oh my gosh. There was a lot of mementos from him, some pictures, um, letters, all kinds of stuff. And it just kept weighing on my mind. It was around sometime between Christmas and Thanksgiving. So I thought, well, I need to get some closure on this. So I'll uh, I'll go buy him a stone and put it on his grave. And I tried to get his ashes, which didn't happen. But I got the stone. I got the stone set. But I didn't get closure. And I'm like, what is going on? And and then I come across some court papers because I've got all my grandparents and uncles' personal belongings. And I got to reading these court papers and it was about what he had done. And I just couldn't get peace. So I'd been talking to my girlfriend about it. And she was having some weird things going on too and in her life. And, and it was leading her to help me. I don't know where it was coming. It was just weird how the whole thing went down. We decided that we would road trip. I looked up on the internet where Leanne was buried and stopped and got some flowers. And we took a road trip down to the cemetery where she's buried. And uh, we spent probably an hour and a half there. Left the flowers there for her and I got peace. I don't know where it came from. How crazy is that? I really did. I got peace. And just like that, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Isn't that strange? It was a good day. It was a really good day. And my girlfriend was just, we were both taken by the cemetery. It's its just a real peaceful place. We sat there for the longest time, just visiting and talking. And, yep, I got peace. So that chapter's closed. 
We head out, Cindy leading the way. Remember, it's raining. I got some flowers. Okay, I don't remember exactly where it's at, but it's in this Somewhere. Still raining. Our umbrella's coming handy. I know, but it's not raining like you want it. I think it's over in here. Okay. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. Did you find it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there it is. That's a neat stone. The way they did that. It is. It's got all of them on there. Anything on the back? April. Hold on. Let's see. In... She would have been 19 in February, the following February. So she must have been 18. I don't know. Everything had her at 16. 55. She did die on my husband's birthday. How weird is that? The 22nd? Mm-hmm. February. 55. 65. What? 65? 75? She'd been 19. In February of 74, right? Yeah. All the paperwork says she was 16 years old. Maybe they transposed the number. I don't know. That's what that said, and I'm positive this is her. Because that lady knew too much about the family. She said, oh, when we got here, she said, oh, you know, she was murdered by her husband. Yeah. I mean, she knows all about it, this lady does. Oh, that's the date. That's her name. Huh. I'm just confused on the age. Uh-huh. It doesn't change anything. It just makes her three years older. The lady Cindy is referring to no longer lived at the house near the property, and I couldn't track her down. I've checked with local historians, family members, and I have no answer as to why all the papers and court documents say she was 16 and her headstone says she was almost 19, two months away from turning 19. When I see her in pictures, to me, she kind of looks 19, but the papers say the brother who found her body was 19. Uh, The mid-70s fall in a gap. You have to send off for those death certificates, and I did years ago. The state cashed my checks for a couple of them and then told me the records department is backed up. I just don't have an answer. By the time Terry, Jay, as he was later called, was diagnosed with lung cancer, it had already spread into his brain. One day sticks out to me. I had a busy, hectic day in the radio newsroom where I worked at the time. As I was getting ready to leave, breaking news came down that Robin Williams had died. So that would be August 11th, 2014. I knew Jay had traveled to the cancer treatment center in Tulsa to get laser surgery on his brain. I left the newsroom and headed to my son's baseball game. I sat in the car for a bit. Do I call? Do I not call? Do I call? Do I not call? (laughs) My sister says I have a sense of duty like no one she's ever met. (laughs) Yay, me. I called. He was bouncing around, saying he laid on the table, they zapped his brain, and he was at Best Buy buying a cord. (laughs) He thanked me for calling and checking on him. And it was sincere. It was eight weeks from diagnosis to when they found him dead in the chair in a room at the treatment center. I felt bad for my mom, sure, and my kids who called him grandpa. No funeral, no memorial, no middle name on his obit. Just J. Martin died October 1st, 2014. Cindy had a plot available and bought a headstone, but my mom has the ashes and she's keeping them for now. I wondered if Leanne's family was watching. I found out they knew he had died, so yes, I'm sure they kept somewhat close tabs on him. Wouldn't you?
and I'm so sorry to Leanne's family losing a 16-year-old girl in such a brutal and public way. Nothing is cut and dry, right? Would I have made different choices had I known all the details from the beginning? It's easy to say yes, but truth be told, I don't know. I was young, married, had no money to do what, right? Terry, J. Martin, the name he died with, taught me valuable life lessons for sure. When that personality type starts heading my way, I run. Full force, knees to elbows, run. So there's that. (laughs) And isn't it sad that my mom left one abusive man just to find another wrapped in a different package? I'm sure he didn't hit her, but he did take advantage of her and all of her insecurities at every turn. I watched him manipulate a lot of situations. There were visits. She didn't even say 10 words. She'd just nod her head and agree. When you are down and out, something loud and shiny can look like a gift. And that makes me sad for women who don't know their worth. The Toll. National statistics concerning domestic violence are staggering. It's tragic. Some of this is behind closed doors, and some of it's not. If you need help, please take the first step towards safety by calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. The Toll Podcast is a production of The Toll LLC. Co-creator and host, Nancy Simpson. Co-creator and executive producer, Jay Lashley. Technical producer and audio editor, Kat Morgan Gaines. Marketing manager, Pamela Shelby. Web design and digital creative director, Shelby Powers. Original music by Jay Lashley. Reproduction or use of any part of this podcast without the expressed permission of The Toll LLC is prohibited. We have pictures related to the toll, My Mom Married a Murderer, at thetollpodcast.com. If you enjoy the toll, subscribe, rate, and share. Thank you.